I could imagine that um, working with the private sector or the government for some time, then going back to university and then importing all your knowledge and your expertise and translate this into teaching and, uh, and research is, is, um, is, is, would be most beneficial. This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Welcome to The Law School Show. It's uh, just Josh today, and I'm recording this introduction in rural Quebec. I really hope the Wi-Fi holds out so I can upload this episode. <laughs> anyway, I spoke uh, earlier this week with Professor Thomas Cotier, uh, a visiting professor from the University of Bern, teaching at the University of Ottawa during the January term. I was enrolled in uh, Professor Cotier's class, and it really struck me uh, that he had a legitimate and genuine curiosity to develop the law in international trade uh, and IP, but also uh, to push uh, cross-collaboration uh, in an academic sense. And we'll get into this in the interview, but um, this is just what I thought a very interesting angle that uh, a lot of law students may be considering, and that's academic work. And uh, Professor Cotier has some strong, uh, candid advice uh, about getting out there, practicing, applying those law school skills first, and then coming back and becoming uh, an expert like he did. So without further ado, uh, Professor Thomas Cotier. Brr, it's cold out here. My name is uh, Thomas Cotier. I'm an emeritus uh, professor of uh, European and International Economic Law, and I was a founder and uh, managing director of the World Trade Institute uh, in Bern, uh, Switzerland. Um, I'm a lawyer. Um, I started off as a constitutional lawyer, working in public international law, doing research in the uh, United States, Michigan, and uh, in, at the University of Cambridge. And then I moved uh, to work in government to be a trade negotiator at the Uruguay round of, uh, from 86 to, to 92 and afterwards I returned back to uh, university as a full professor teaching international economic law and European law at the University of Bern and as a visiting professor in other universities around the world. Thank you very much for joining us today, that's uh, quite the introduction and Probably a lot for our, for a lot of our listeners, a lot of our law students to imagine um, doing in one career. Um, I guess before we get into your law career, um, could you um, could you tell us about yourself without describing the law? Well, I'm I'm a I'm a family person. I have a, a three children who've grown up, five grandchildren, and that's the center of my uh, personal life here. I'm a, I'm a sailor, I'm a mountaineer, I, I go climbing, I go hiking in the mountains, I do cross-country skiing, I do downhill skiing in Switzerland, obviously. And um, I, um, I really love uh, to be out in, in nature. I, I also play the cello, and so I'm, I'm very fond of music. And, and um, so, so culture and, and reading is important to me. Um, so the law is, uh, is one side, but I don't think you can't, you cannot be a good lawyer without actually 
are developing a very broad cultural background. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. Uh, one of the reasons why we're speaking with you today is, uh, you know, academics in general and the work you've done in, in, uh, in, in the field that you're working in as well. And that's a very real potential avenue for North American or other you know, European law students to eventually go into. But um, I guess if you could speak to your experience as, uh, you know, in academics, uh, specifically, you know, getting around to the field, and I'll let you introduce and preface what, uh, you know, you're currently working on and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, I was trained as a, as a constitutional lawyer in public international law in the classical sense, and then I had the opportunity to do an LLM at the University of Michigan Law School, and that's where I got exposed to, uh, to um, international economic law and, um, and also uh, European law. The great advantage of American uh, education is that uh, you, professors may develop uh, their pet subjects uh, and go into new fields, uh, while in Europe these are well-defined chairs and they have to be placed with the same kind of uh, um, subject coverage. So it's much more difficult to actually innovate here. And uh, so I, I, I was able to, to learn a lot in these new subjects, go back to Europe. Then uh, in Europe I've actually found closed doors for these new areas. They would say this is not part of public international law and we don't, we're not really interested. And I moved on to 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 work um, in classical fields, uh, particularly in the law of the sea in Cambridge. But then I had the opportunity, and that's the important step. I, I had the opportunity to go to government and start negotiating in the European realm. I was I was became a negotiator, and um, that's where that's how I got into practicing uh, trade law and developing trade law. And I was um, the the main. Um, the main negotiator in that's several fields, but in, in particular intellect property. Hmm. So this is something I never touched upon in my studies uh, because it was commercial law, so I learned a lot and I'm one of the few who introduced then intellect property into public international law discourse, which didn't exist before, as much as I contributed to bringing uh, trade law into the public international law discourse, which wasn't there before this in this classical canon here. So what you learn is that it, you, it takes the stimulation from practical work uh, to actually uh, advance academic disciplines. Hmm. And that's why I think the model of going back and forth uh, in terms of research is, uh, is, is, is uh, the best one. Um, you learn in practice and uh, you then go and can digest it in academic research. You can, students will benefit from your practical experience, which uh, a person who's always been in academia wouldn't have. And that is that is very enriching, and and then you you may also feed things back into practice. So I, for example, while I was a professor, I did a lot of uh, arbitration in the WTO uh, panels, and uh, so I was able to apply some of the insights and conceptualize insights, and then turn this into um, the advancement of um, the law and legal disciplines. So would you say to pursue practice? you know, post-graduation, and if you have an academic interest, perhaps keep it on the back burner, stay informed, and somehow then return to it? Is that, you know, maybe a strategy? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think what, what 
if you if you keep in mind perhaps going into into teaching and uh, professorship during uh, you should you sh you fully concentrate in your professional work but maybe you 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 try to keep publishing one or two papers you develop here so you build up your record you would you won't have the time to write a book I suppose I mean in North America people don't write that many PhDs as in Europe which is uh, just a different system, but uh, may, maybe eventually they may get into this, and and um, I could imagine that um, working with the private sector or the government for some time, then going back to university and then importing all your knowledge and your expertise and translate this into teaching and uh, and research is is um, is is would be most beneficial. And you could even do this in a temporary basis for four or eight years and then move back into the private sector as we often see this in the US and with the US governmental system. And they are very creative people and they advance uh, the law more than those who are in their silos all their lives. Hmm. So what keeps you what keeps you coming back to these experiences? These uh, You're here visiting as a professor in New Ottawa. You may be going to other international institutions. What, what keeps you um, in the field? Well, um, I'm I'm a sort of a victim of these uh, uh, European um, deadlines. Uh, you have to step down at sixty-five as a full professor, uh -huh. uh, which is different in North America. I think we're completely outdated over there. I'm, I'm sixty-five is just not an age where you stop working essentially today. Um, so uh, and you don't have these barriers in North America, so um, um, that's why I was uh, keen to come here, uh, because I think um, interacting with young people like you and students and to pass on the experience is, is a very rewarding uh, thing to do, and we have a lot on the plate. You just think about what we did in the course on interfacing climate change and trade. That's your agenda. That's your future agenda. That's what you guys will have to settle and solve and uh, just to make a small contribution to get these things going I think is something uh, I'm obliged to do and I'm happy to do if I get the opportunity and um, back home I'm, I'm essentially a, a senior fellow at the World Trade Institute and I, uh, I, I run uh, still uh, one or two research groups uh, uh, advising a lot of PhD students, I interact with them, and um, I, I'll, I hope to be able to make my contribution in that way for for a couple of more years. Hmm. Um, so I guess in regards to that, you mentioned the trade law interface with climate change of the future. Where uh, where do you see, at least in your you know your field, um, you know the arenas that young legal scholars should be looking at? Um, you know, not on every front, but sort of in your uh, in your milieu, right in your uh, area specialty. Well, I think there is a you. You have to if you go. You're talking now about research, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, as a young researcher, you have to focus in a particular field. You have to establish yourself in a particular field. That is one thing, which normal people do with uh, writing a PhD or or writing papers and etc. Uh, but then I think what is today what is required is actually interfacing, uh, interconnecting different fields. And that requires a new structure of research. 
uh, we can no longer afford simply to have these highly individualized research agendas where every every professor, every research sits in his little cupboard and writes his paper and submits its paper to a journal which uh, a few other people may read. We, we have to come to grips with collaborative efforts and I, I really learned this from um, the scientists in the uh, IPCC, the uh, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on uh, Climate Change, which really revolutionized the um, relationship of research to government mm. by, by having a, a, a very well and a thorough review of uh, the literature, the research and the conclusions, then uh, policy advice, etc., to make the case uh, how, how um, human activities are related to um, uh, global, global warming here. And that's and that that impact and that contribution is there and I think it is now generally accepted. Without this effort it wouldn't be. We would still have a lot of people uh, questioning whether that is necessary because it's not human made etc. And, and they really established the evidence here and we, we're far from this in the social sciences because we're totally fragmented. So we need different uh, we need different structures in research which you can bring about with uh, uh, the funding structures of research project. They have to be interdisciplinary, collaborative. Um, that's one thing. But the culture in universities have to change, and we have to award people who are working in groups and who are working in an interdisciplinary way. And the incentive structures today are not there. So people, you can't expect people to do that because uh, if they go into interdisciplinary work, that will be not rewarded by the system. You don't get tenure, you don't get appointments. So I think that the system here has to evolve and we have to learn from the scientists. We also can learn from NGOs. We have very powerful NGOs today who work very effectively influencing policymakers, doing basic research on things, putting things together, and they have much more influence than academia. So academia has to change here if they want to, if they want to keep influential uh, in the next uh, decades. What would be the a single piece of advice to a law student considering either an academic career or a career particularly in a cross-collaborative sense that you would... I think if you, if you go, uh, if after your studies you go into practice, you, you're, you're exposed to interdisciplinarity. The, because the problems are complex and, and uh, the pop, uh, the, you have to solve complex problems and not the other way around. So you're exposed to similarity. And I think practical lawyers don't have this problem. They really have to work together and law firms do that just to, to, to satisfy the client, full mm -hmm. stop. But in academia it's different and we need to make progress here. So I think as a young person... Um, to start off, uh, just make your case in a particular field and develop your expertise and then bring that expertise to the table. You can't be uh, top in all the fields, you know, but um, you may bring something to the table, a piece of cake, which can be uh, part of a, of, um, of a, broader, a broader piece, and which, is, which is more than simply adding up the components here. And that requires... Um, Curiosity. You, you, while you, while you specialize in a field, keep an open mind. What's going on in other areas, so that you're able to connect these things. Don't fall into the trap of simply specializing, focusing on one thing, ignore the rest. Because life is complicated, and you always have to 
interlink issues and if you don't get the connectors with a wide open interest and a broad, broad wide open eyes and, and a broad interest you're not able to solve problems. I think that applies for good advice in general in, uh, in law school while you're in it as well yeah, is to take in. the blinders yeah. off a little bit yeah. cross collaborate. I know a lot of students in a lot of rewarding classroom experiences have been those that where there's genuine exchange, where there's those different perspectives, and I think carrying that forward yeah. in your career is, uh, yeah, very important. And I, for example, I always learn most from going into uh, speeches or, or sessions where I don't know much about it. Uh, when I go to sessions, I know a lot about it, that, that the gains are smaller than when you go to something which is new, hmm. which may have a relation here. So I think that's the sort of attitude one needs to have. Very good advice. Um, two more questions. Uh, maybe it hasn't played a factor, or maybe it has, but what's the day-to-day -day of your professional life? I think a lot of law students have a curiosity in different fields based on work-life balance, that terrible uh, phrase. But how has your experience been in that regard? Well, I think my, my wife would say I've never reached a proper work-life balance. Um, it was, uh, was uh, I mean, my generation is, is, uh, was, was really um, just uh, mainly focusing on work uh, throughout many years. And uh, I think it's a challenge to, to, to bring this about, and particularly in this uh, fast-moving age of Internet and emails and uh, fast communication here just to, to structure your day in a, in a proper in a proper way. I think now it's easier and um, I can set aside time for reading and uh, leisure and um, going out into nature, sailing, etc. Uh, but um, when I was uh, when I was full-time working that was just uh, very difficult and the reward was essentially in the work, working with people, you know, you didn't really make this distinction between work and leisure but your life is where you are and, and, and uh, so you, you may have leisure even within your work uh, while inter interacting with people and working with people and yes. traveling and seeing other places and other people and uh, you don't really make that distinction so between work and, and life uh, or, or leisure uh, to that extent. Last question. If not law, then what? Um, when I had to this, I was I was when I was young. I was in the army, and I basically had the plan to become a pediatrician, and then I missed the deadlines in the medical school, and I turned to law. So I probably would have become a doctor. Um, I come out of a doctor family, and that was sort of the uh, a, a path I, I could take. Um, I also had great interest in aviation, and uh, but I I felt that. The, um, to become an aviation engineer, etc., I would have to emigrate, and I, and I, I wasn't that good at math, so I felt I'd rather stay uh, in other fields. You've just been listening to the Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from the Law School Show. Career Advancing Advice, right to your earbuds. <laughs>
Okay, so Professor Cartier had quite a lot to say, and I wish I could have fit it into the original episode. Um, but here's a bit more from uh, the interview. A throwback to the secret tracks of the late 90s. It might have been a little while ago, but uh, let's, let's, let's bring it back uh, to when you studied law. Uh, and then maybe compare that experience, if you don't mind telling us, uh, and then your experiences now teaching. Um, and then we'll get, you know, circle back to around your professional uh, experiences as well. Well, I, I started law uh, basically uh, after having been exposed in studying Latin, uh, uh, the, the, some of the cases in, in Roman law. I think that the issues there were, were quite interesting, and that um, uh, encouraged me to, to go into law school. In Europe, you would still study uh, uh, Roman law to some extent. Uh, we, we also had very extensive historical studies. and. This and the legal philosophy and constitutional law really interested me most during my studies, while most of the rest I just did to pass the exams, essentially. How might you see some differences, I guess, between contemporary law school, legal education? Well, there's a big difference between Europe and uh, the United States and Canada. Um, we have a, basically a public-funded law schools uh, with low tuitions, but the, the price you pay, of course, is uh, large classes, uh, uh, less individualized uh, groups uh, in teaching, um, less professors, um, so people are much more on their own. They also work next to it just to uh, get their income. They don't live with, uh, with uh, huge debts. Um, it's not necessary. But I think um, uh, European students uh, except the very few walls have, are, are less engaged actually in studying than uh, in North America. Um, I think the commitment to really study hard and uh, the competitive environment here and the pressure from uh, the loan structure and to get good grades and then actually be very competitive on the market is, uh, is more intense here, I think. Hmm. I mean, in Europe, the, uh, the law school follows after the, uh, you, you pass your, um, your um, uh, A-levels, as they called in England, they're back in France, or the Matura, the Abitur, and people start studying law when they basically have a broad education in uh, about 12 to 14 subjects, and they, they start moving into law at the age of 19, 20. Uh, but they don't have professional experience before, or they don't have um, um, uh, uh, studies in um, an undergraduate in a different field. And I always felt in, the, in North America, in the classes where you have people with very different undergraduate backgrounds, is very enriching. And law school is basically a, really a professional school um, on top of your undergrad studies and very dense in three years. And that creates a different climate. Do you notice, or have you noticed, teaching in North America, I mean, you know, different backgrounds, uh, economics or science or the humanities? Um, I think you, know. you, you have much richer classroom discussions because people bring in their different backgrounds uh, on the table, which in Europe you wouldn't have. Uh, you always have the few who do, do this as a secondary education, they have worked before, etc. But that's a, that's a minority, the big crowds are young, young people moving into the law without having undergraduate studies somewhere else. Hmm.